I can't think of a better way to transition into a sermon than to reflect upon the actions of Jesus. We have spent the last few weeks getting acquainted with the book of Acts, particularly the Acts of the Apostles and what the Lord was beginning to stir amongst the early church. We try to understand the reasons behind their actions thus far and why is it that disciples were doing the things that they were doing and why were they acting in this way as we see them in in Scripture. As I just mentioned, it's good to be able to reflect upon the actions of Jesus because some of the reason the apostles were so changed was because Jesus did walk on the water. Jesus did calm the sea. He did prove to be the one born for our salvation. He did bring freedom from the chains of sin that binds us. He is the rock. He is the redeemer. There is power in the name of Jesus. But the reason there is power in the name of Jesus is because all that is associated with Jesus, namely His perfect sinless life, His vicarious death on the cross and His glorious and powerful resurrection. Yes, Jesus. That is the motive. That is the fuel behind the acts of the apostles. So today we're going to be looking at a piece of discourse in the acts that is corollary to Peter's sermon to those in the upper room and for all of those uh, who would hear him preach The first sermon that is preached after Pentecost yields powerful, spirit-driven, Christ-centered or Christocentric results. So, if you will, I will invite you in a moment to stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Now, take this into account. I will be reading from verse 14 through verse 41. Some of these verses I will expound upon more than others And if you feel that you need to sit down in the middle of this reading, feel free to do that. I will not be offended one bit, but I will ask for the corpus of the church, the body of Christ, to stand as we read, beginning at verse 14, with a sermon that is entitled, And It Shall Come to Pass. Verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Here's what he said, Men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men shall dream dreams Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. But therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my God, Sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Father, we pray your blessing upon the word. Speak to us with clarity. Help us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A lot of verses to cover. But it is very important that we encapsulate all of Peter's sermon to get the gist of what he, what he is saying. The core of what Peter is saying is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. A quick 20-second snapshot, if you were to take out your timer, and if you were to say, give me 20 seconds, Pastor Larry, I'm going to give you a 20-second snapshot of what has happened so far. The disciples were waiting in the upper room for the promise of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt with them, and they began to speak in other languages. Everyone understood each other as a testament to the work of the Lord. Then Peter begins to preach, and this is where we pick up today. Beginning at verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven. He lifted his voice as to preach. He addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let it be known, give ear to my words. Now, I want you to notice what Peter says. Peter did not preach to the 
people in tongues. He didn't preach in uh, different languages. He preached in their native language. More than likely, it was either Hebrew or Aramaic, since he is addressing his people, for he says, men of Judea. And he gives us an indication that these are Jews and not necessarily Gentiles, although there would be a mixture of some amongst them. This is a Jewish holiday, and the content of his sermon is pointed to the resurrected Jesus. This is the one they were looking for. This is the anointed one, the Messiah. In the Hebrew language, it is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Holy One. This is who you've been looking for. Before the gospel goes into the uttermost parts, remember the Acts 1-8 framework? Before the gospel goes into the uttermost parts, it must engage at the Jerusalem level. This is why the Gentiles are not seen as all in for the gospel until we reach Acts chapter 10, the discourse with Cornelius, some would call the Gentile Pentecost. Peter says this in verse 15, For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, looking at verse 13, being the Orthodox Jews would not drink any wine before 9 o'clock in the morning. And here they are standing around in doubt on the outskirts when God is doing a mighty work. And by the way, there is always somebody standing on the outskirts doubting when God is working. And we would sometimes call these folks unregenerate. Either unregenerate or immature in their faith. When God is working, those on the outside casting doubt, though they're drunk, listen to them babble, they're, they're drunk with wine, and Peter says, no, they're not. They're not drunk with wine, they're drunk with the Spirit. Because this is what was uttered from the prophet Joel. This is a prophecy being brought to fruition. And Peter recognizes this and expounds from God's Word. He exposits from God's Word. He preaches from God's Word. This is so important. How do people, listen, how do people respond to false teaching and accusations? How does the church, how does God's people in Christ, how do we respond to false teaching and false accusation? We expound from the Scriptures, which is exactly what Peter does here. He pulls from the book of Joel, saying that this has come to pass, and we have seen this. Joel is amongst what is called the minor prophets. Some call Joel amongst the book of the Twelve. Calling Joel a minor prophet does not mean that his words are of less value. It doesn't mean that, that Joel was a, a smaller uh, a prophet, uh, calling him minor. His message was just as powerful as Isaiah or Jeremiah or any other prophet in the Bible. It just means that he might have not been well known as Isaiah or Jeremiah or well spread as the others might be. But his message was just as powerful as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Moses, because it's God's Word. And so, as the message before us today is, and it shall come to pass, there's a couple of things I want to demonstrate by using these verses on what will come to pass. Number one, it shall come to pass in the last days the Holy Spirit reveals. 
You might use the term revelation, giving an understanding of what is revealed in God's Word. Not new revelation, but understanding of revelation. What are the last days, as, as Peter will say here in just a moment, the last days? These people gathering in this upper room were seeing Babel, the Tower of Babel, undone. That Those that were once scattered are now brought in. And now they are thrust into the era of history, the era of history known as the last days. And we have been living in the last days since Pentecost. And how do we know this? Peter literally mentions last days as saying, when the Spirit is poured upon His people, we are in the last days. Listen to what he says. In the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Has that happened at Pentecost? Yes. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. The prophet Joel forecasted in Chapter 2, verse 28 and 32 that we heard Tyler read this morning. The last days when God will pour out His Spirit on all people. The Holy Spirit will not only be relegated to special leaders such as Moses or the prophets. And now the Holy Spirit will go towards all who are saved in Christ Jesus. It's not just for the special leaders anymore through the ages he will be with them and within the young, the old, the men, and women, slave and free. Verse 18, even on the male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. For us, that word prophesy today would be simply, and they shall preach. God who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, who met with the high priest and the holy of holies, sitting upon the mercy seat in the temple, now because of Christ Jesus, this Holy Spirit will dwell with His people in a personal, personal tangible way. Wonders in heaven above the signs and on the earth is a reference to Joel Chapter 2 and verse 30 is indicating of the coming, the great day of the Lord. And on this great day of the Lord, He will, God will intervene in history. See, God has intervened in history in three or two major epic movements coming a third. The birth of the Lord Jesus, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and to come the coming of the Lord Jesus and this great day when God will once again intervene in human history enacting lasting eternal judgment at the same time, the total redemption of His people who are in Christ Jesus who will receive a glorified body. All of these signs and miracles and wonders that I might have, had have happened in biblical history is the Lord demonstrating the guidance of the Holy Spirit all the way to the very day in which we live and breathe. It might look different. We don't have to have the Holy Spirit, if you will, fall upon us and speak in other tongues because we have the written Word of God. The movement of the Holy Spirit in His church might look a little different than it did amongst the early church. There may not be anyone here today that sees visions or dreams. 
But the Holy Spirit still gives guidance and clear revelation or an understanding of revelation every single day. Have you ever read God's Word and you have read it through and through? Pastor Jason talked about this last week of reading God's Word chronologically. Have you ever read through some scripture and you've read it a million times and then all of a sudden on that day, whatever day it is, something stops you in your tracks and says, wow, I never thought of it that way. Or this is an applicable point that I have not thought of before. Maybe it could be that the Holy Spirit is in the reading of that Word of God and begins to illumine and speak to you and pointing you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that today as we read His Word. The Holy Spirit points to the truth of Word. He points to Jesus as Messiah and Savior. And at the very end of the age, one can expect to see wanders in heaven above the signs and And on the earth below, fire and blood and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned dark, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. And he says, the great, magnificent day. And we can say that because we are still here living and breathing on this earth, and there are other people here as well, that this day is left to occur. There is a future event that is still to come. But I do not want you sitting there this morning with this thought in mind. Some would ascribe to what is termed the pre-tribulation rapture before the great day of the Lord. Others would say that we are going to be raptured in in the middle of tribulation. But here's what I do not want us to do. If indeed the doctrine of the rapture is true, I do not want us to be sitting here with this thought in mind. I don't plan on being there. I plan on being raptured. And that might be the case. And we live as if there's a post-rapture, but hope there's a pre, right? And you might be sitting there, oh, I'm I'm going to be raptured. I'm going to escape all this tribulation. And then we're going to come and we're going to return with the Lord on this great day of the Lord. And even though that might be true, think about the hundreds of people who you know around you who on this great day of the Lord will slip into eternity, crash into eternity, and die in their sins. Taking that the pre-tribulation rapture might be true, saying that it might be the more accurate teaching, let's just say that it might be. It's funny how certain theological teachings enable us to be more selfish than others. What do I mean by that? I got mine, you worry about yours. I'm going to escape, what are you going to do? Now I'm not saying if you ascribe to pre-tribulation rapture or anything like that, that you're selfish, I'm not saying that. But if we are not careful, we can travel that road where we have no concern about those who are going to meet the Lord on this great day and be cast forever away from His love and goodness forever. Notice in verse 18, the sole reason and signs for these wonders are given is so that male and female servants, evangelists, preachers, teachers can prophesy of these coming events and better yet, to preach that Christ crucified is risen which is where Peter is going with his sermon. Christ risen from the dead. 
We not only see this prophecy in Joel and Acts, but we also see it in at least three other places. I'll put the reference up for those who might be taking notes. Revelation 6, 12, Revelation 16, verse 8, and Ezekiel 39, 39. Describes to some way the moon becoming like blood and the sun blotted out and darkness and so forth and so on. So I'll leave that up for a few moments for you to jot those down for reference. So what I want us to do is stand back for just a minute in, in distance from what we just read. And, and let's look at it from a, from a distance. Let's look at it as, as an icon or snapshot. The Lord has poured out His Spirit upon His people. In Jesus now, in Christ, there will be... What will, there, what, what, what will happen? There will be preaching. There will be visions and dreams. There will be preaching again. And this will stretch all the way to the end of the age in some fashion. But the highlight on proclamation cannot be overemphasized. The proclamation of God's word and getting in God's word. The great day of the Lord will come, which is the day of pronounced judgment. But there is hope. What is the hope? You know, we use this word hope in a different way uh, that the biblical writers had in mind. When we see this word used in a New Testament fashion, hope is almost as good as saying faith or faithful. They had hope or we can say, we can even say faith. What is the faith that they have? What is the solid faith that, they, that, that, Paul, that Peter is representing? Well, it's found in verse 21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But as we'll find in verse 38, there must be repentance. Listen, without repentance, you will not call upon the name of the Lord. In all of this, what seems to be calamity, the Lord still displays His grace by moving Peter to say, as the prophet Joel says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So in the context, you men of Israel who sought to crucify their Messiah, you men of Israel who condemned Jesus, who you thought was out of his mind, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And thank the Lord it ain't just for the men of Israel and Judea and Samaria, it's for those who have an ear to hear. Had it not been for the quickening, the making alive of the Holy Spirit, there would be none of us saved. Why? Because it is not in our ability to approach the holiness of God in our fallen and broken spiritual state. No matter how good of a person we might think that we are, no matter how good of a life we think that we have, have led, you will, will not be able to approach the holiness of God in our own strength. So it takes the Holy Spirit to quicken and make alive so we can understand that we are broken, that we are far from God. Christianity Today had an article concerning one of the best commentaries ever to be heard. Yes, heard. And this article was written a few years ago, and uh, the author in, of Christianity Today, this particular author, he wrote it this way. So I'm going to read it exactly how it's written. It read like this. A friend told me of an incident that happened while he was in seminary. Since the school had no gymnasium, he and his friends played basketball in a nearby public school. The elder janitor waited patiently until the seminarians finished playing. Invariably, he sat down there reading his Bible. One day, my friend asked him what he was reading. The man answered, the book of Revelation. Surprised, my friend asked if he understood it. 
Oh, yes, the man assured him. I understand it. Well, what does it mean? Very quietly, the janitor answered, it means that Jesus is going to win. That is the best commentary I have ever heard on the book of Revelation, that Jesus is going to win. And that is the biblical mindset coming from Peter, coming from Joel, coming from the prophets, coming from the evangelists. This is the confidence we need as we face the future when God alone knows when the river might rise again. You know, we use that phrase, uh, Lord willing, and the river don't rise. Well, God knows when the river's going to rise too, amen? From the visions and dreams and miracles and predictions, one thing is revealed. Jesus not only is going to win, but has won the victory. So not only does the Holy Spirit reveal, give revelation, give clarity, but it shall come to pass that the gospel must be proclaimed. The gospel must be proclaimed. I cannot say this enough particularly for churches in America today and in the world, really, we must have the primacy of the gospel as the mode of operation. Piney Grove, the primacy of the gospel must be in all that we do. Gone must be the days of sermons and lessons that are filled with self-help strategies and stories that will draw people's attention more to the preacher than to the message. If I have said it once, I've said it a thousand times. In the words of the reformer who once said, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. The gospel must be central. But I want you to notice the urgency in Peter's message. Peter has had the Holy Spirit engraft and indwell him, and he has got to preach. Okay, there is a message. Peter has a, a message. He is much like Jeremiah, the prophet, who said, There is in my heart, there is a, a burning fire that is shut up in my bones. I am weary. I can't hold it in no more. There's a message I've got for Israel. Peter says, there is a message I have for you, men of Judea, men of Samaria, men of the uttermost parts. And I'm weary of holding it in. I cannot hold it in any longer. And so Peter begins further in his sermon. He gives four proofs that Jesus is Messiah. Four proofs that Jesus is Messiah. They will stretch from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. And here they are. I will leave it up to you as students of the Bible to line them up in the outline. Number one, Peter gave the sign that Jesus is Messiah by Jesus, his signs, his wonders, and his resurrection. Secondly, David's prophecy. We read this in verse 25 through 31 in the book of Acts as portrayed in, the, in Psalms. Number three, the testimony of believers or witnesses, those who saw the risen Lord. Corinthians tells us that there was 500 people who saw Jesus alive. So it is the believers or witnesses. And lastly, the presence of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say? I must go so that the helper might come, the comforter might come. So the presence of the Holy Spirit is a proof that Jesus is who he said that he is. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, it was a man 
attested to you by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. You know what Jesus said. You saw with your eyes. This being the account of miracles that Jesus performed and his resurrection. So he walked on the water, turned water into wine. He healed the deaf. He healed those who couldn't see. He rose a man up off a, off a, off a mat, rose Lazarus from the dead. He fed 4,000, 5,000. All the miracles, all the miracles that Jesus did and the resurrection comes and stamps everything, everything as God-ordained. This is an act of God. As uh, Lee Strobel, Gary Habermas, these guys who focus on the resurrection would say that the resurrection authenticates all the miracles of Jesus, demonstrating that he was and is indeed God. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He said this, you crucified men of Israel, you crucified men of Judea, you crucified, you killed him by the hands of lawless men. Two things are happening in this verse. The book of Revelation helps us line this up. Revelation 13 and verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, talking of the beast, but everyone whose name had not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain from the very foundation of the, of, the, of the earth as well. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the earth. Peter says this is the definite plan of God, the foreknowledge of God, the all-knowing plan of God that he was going to suffer by the hands of lawless men. Now, these lawless men were supposed to be men of the law of God. They were the high church folk who were supposed to know the law of God, who were supposed to know the law through and through and accurately interpret the law, and yet their legalism led them to be blind to the work of the living God. Then it says God raised them up, speaking of his resurrection, Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's just not possible for God incarnate to be held by death. And here lies the proof of the Messiahship, his Lordship, his divinity, the resurrection. Jesus proved that he is Messiah by his resurrection. That God raised him up, put an end to the suffering of death since it was impossible for him to be held by death. Now, the pangs, some of your Bible translate that as P-A-N-G-S. The pangs of death is sometimes described as a band, a, a bond of sorts. Death confines people, and they can't break out of this confinement. They are, they are wrapped in this image of a, of a band, and they are slowly pressed in by the pangs of death, the bond of death that prevents them from escaping and produces, to some degree, suffering. Yet, Jesus broke free of these bonds to rise triumphantly. I say all that to say this, friends, that the grave is empty. Amen? The grave is empty. The second proof of the testimony following on the trail of the resurrection is the testimony of David, taken from Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11. And this is what Peter says. He's expounding from David, so I will read it as it's written through the voice of David from 16 of Psalm, verse 8 through 11. Here's what Peter says. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, the flesh dwelled in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One. That's Jesus, by the way. That's the Messiah, by the way. That's the anointed one. See corruption. And you may make known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness at your presence. And he says, brothers. So here again is Peter. I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died. David died. David was buried. And his tomb is with us this day. It's right over there. His tomb is right over there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, namely Jesus, he foresaw David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned in hell or Hades or Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. This God raised him up. And we're all witnesses. So we have the testimony and the witnesses. We have the testimony and witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So Peter is expounding from God's word. David saw it. David prophesied of the resurrection. In other words, and I'll say it again, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. David and every other person born has a place of burial uh, or or death, and uh, Jesus' tomb is empty. I was thinking about this the other day, and I shared a little bit of this at Miss Jean's uh, funeral, and I, I was really thinking I couldn't get this out of my out of my out of my head, and and I thought it was a testament to the power of God that Joseph of Arimathea is buried in his own tomb. Think about it. Joseph of Arimathea born, uh, buried in his own tomb. I did a little bit of research, best as I could come in with. Yes, he's buried here, he's buried there, but there are scholars who will collaborate and that will say that Joseph of Arimathea is buried in his own tomb. Now, why is that of significance? It's as if Jesus implied, well, Joseph, you can have it back. I'm not going to be needing it very long. I'm not going to need it anymore. You can have it. And so it implies that the resurrection, it shows, it demonstrates that the resurrection is indeed powerful and changes lives. And without the resurrection, Paul says, we are people who are miserable. Our faith is in vain. The lastly, the uh, last proof that Paul uh, Peter uses is the proof of the Holy Spirit. And in closing, he says, he is exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. All this that you see and hear is the Lord bringing this to pass, that he prophesied through the minor prophet Joel. This is, this is what's happening. Holy Spirit, is, they're not drunk. They're not drunk. It's the Spirit of God being poured out. For David did not ascend it to heaven, but he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord would rise again, be triumphant, come back as king, and will rule as king of kings and lord of lords. So, that being said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord Ruler, King, and Christ, the Anointed One. This Christ, the Anointed One, whom you crucified, He laid charge at their feet. So here's where the dynamic of preaching comes to bear. And I I love this because it shows what happens when the Word of God is rightly divided. Here's where the dynamic of preaching comes to bear. In many sermons that are biblically driven, that are Christ-centered, you have the exposition of the Word, the unction of the Holy Spirit of God, 
the preaching of God's word, the Holy Spirit is moving, then you have a response from that word. Now that doesn't mean that every Sunday morning or every time God's word is proclaimed that you have an outpouring on the altar, people laying and lamenting on the altar. It does not mean that. It means when we say the benediction and when we go out these doors that somewhere, somehow the word that you have heard today through the spirit of God and the word of God will bring you to a response. You will respond to God's word. And even if you do not respond, that is a response. And that is the dynamic of the word. It's not a formula. It's not made up to manipulate people. The one that is centered on the word of God, that is centered on Christ Jesus. So listen how they respond to the hearing of Jesus as Messiah. Here's how they respond. Now when they heard it, they heard Paul, Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Well, I'm glad you asked. For a pastor, for a preacher, for an uh, overseer, this is low-hanging fruit. What shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. Circle that, underline that in your Bible. Repent. and Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in that verse, what is highlighted, what is at the peak of this verse, is the word repent. What I would say to you this morning, as we have read Peter's great sermon from Joel, from Psalm 16, is the one word that is expressed in verse 38. If you were to take anything away from this sermon this morning, amongst your notes that you have been taking, the word repent. By the, word, by the way, the word repent and repentance has been all the way in God's word since the fall of man. God has always expected humankind to repent of their sins and follow Him wholeheartedly. Before we unpack the word, let's back up against what was expressed thus far. Peter begins to preach to his fellow Jews, and the last days are upon them. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit authenticating this work of God, through dreams and visions and preaching would happen, salvation would happen. The Holy Spirit is now here because Jesus was crucified by the hands of lawless people. He was put in the tomb of a rich man, and the grave couldn't keep him enclosed. Jesus rose again from the grave and many, many people saw him alive. And that is why you see all of this happening here. The people heard this truth. They heard the truth. They were convicted of their own sinfulness and their blindness and they repented. Okay? Leads us all up to this word. And all of this, 14 through verse 41, repentance, repent, he says. Some people don't like that word, I can tell. The key word for verse 38 is repent. The word repent is the word metanoia, the Greek that means to change your mind, to change your life. It means turn around and you do it now. When God's word gets a hold of you and you say, well, look, I, I can't go any further, I got to repent. It means that you ask for forgiveness, you repent, you do a 180, you run away from what you were doing, and you run towards the Savior Jesus. Turn around 
And the urgency is there to do it now. You crucified this Jesus. Now he must rule in your heart as Christ and Lord. In other words, because of the power of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we turn around, we march away from sinfulness, and we march with Jesus for the rest of our lives. Because of this repentance, they followed in baptism. Okay, notice the two are not intertwined. It is repentance. That is why we baptize in believer's baptism, that they repented of their sin. That is first and foremost. It is not commingled. They followed in obedience to what Jesus said. Now we'll be baptized in an open profession and public proclamation. Repentance, salvation followed in baptism. So let's close. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone who the Lord calls to himself. If there ever is a verse about election, this is a proof text. God calls people to himself. We do not walk freely to God in our own volition and our own power. And with many other words, he bore witness and continues to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. Okay, it's not a political thing. Okay, it's not get away from your politicians. You don't get away from your presidents and your congressmen. It has nothing to do with politics. It's not saying, yeah, hey, look, we've got to worry about a, a, a spy balloon above us. Let's shoot it down. None of that junk. Okay? The crooked generation deals with wickedness and a distorted view of who God is. Then he says in closing, For those who received his word, they were baptized, and they were added to the church 3,000 souls. People were saved. 3,000 people were saved hearing Peter preach from the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus. In the last days, the Holy Spirit reveals. It shall come to pass that the Holy Spirit will reveal and continues to illumine our mind and heart to the Word. Brings us to a place of repentance. And it shall come to pass that the gospel must be proclaimed. In our lives, in our homes, must be proclaimed in all that we do. And not only proclaimed... But there is a level of obedience to where we live out the gospel in every aspect of our lives. What a powerful sermon this is from Peter. Who teaches us to rely on the Holy Spirit. To hear and give word to the gospel. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ, the risen Savior. Today might be the day. The Lord is dealing with you right now to lay your sins upon Jesus. The Bible tells us that he that is Jesus became sin, took our sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. Maybe that's you today. and You're saying, Lord, forgive me my sin. I am a sinner. I have never trusted in Jesus. And if I was to die right now, I know that I would not. I would not ever see God. I would never see Jesus. I would be separated from the goodness of God forever. I know if I died right now, I would, I would go to hell. 
but the allure of the gospel is not whether or not you make heaven or hell, it's whether or not you have Christ. Maybe that's you. I'll ask you if you will, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful again for your word. We're thankful, God, that you have helped us to understand it. As Peter understood, as well as we do, that your scripture interprets scripture. And we see this from the voice of Peter in these verses. You have poured your Holy Spirit upon your people so we can understand what we read, so we can be enabled to, to live it out and to go to share our faith with our neighbors, our friends, those who we know are lost. And yes, we might escape the wrath to come by the rapture, and that might happen, but give us a little more time, Father, in your timing, in fact, to reach out and to share our faith and our testimony. For one who is here today who doesn't know yet, God, I pray, will come to faith in you, Lord. You have poured your Holy Spirit so that we can understand. And Father, you have made it clear that there must be a proclamation of the gospel. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.